as I've been preparing these sermons the last few weeks, I've been noticing more and more, as I've looked more at the topic of love, the depth and the degree of the mystery of God's love, and it's just kind of been a joy for me. I hope it's a joy for you. Um, But just contemplating and thinking about how deep the Father's love is as we sing frequently, how amazing his love is. I pray that this morning, as we continue to look at this topic, uh, that would be our experience as a church, just for all of the things that we want to learn, for all of the things that we're going to try to apply and make practical from the text more than anything, just to gaze and be amazed by the love of our God. So we're going to stand and read, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 12. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the text there. We're going to be on page 960. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness and the gift that your word is to us. We pray that you would help us to rightly understand, to rightly be amazed by your word, to rightly be moved and changed by it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us this morning. We thank you that your word stands. It is not passing away. We thank you that your love stands. I pray that you would help us to see that clearly this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible places us within the context of a story. And when I say the word story, to clarify, I don't mean a fiction, I don't mean a myth, as we often use that word, but I mean a a narrative, a series of events that are connected in a meaningful way. Within those connections, within those ties, uh, we find meaning and purpose and uh, direction. A story doesn't sit in one place. It has an arc. It has somewhere that it started as somewhere that it is going towards. And this is what the Bible gives us, among many other things. But if you open up where we are right now, you're going to be in a different place in the story than if you opened up in the beginning of Genesis. If you flip all the way to the back, you're going to find yourself in a different place than if you were at the beginning. And what we believe about this story, what we understand of it, is going to affect not only what we believe, but how we act. Not only what we think about the future, but how we're going to be in the present. What Paul told the Corinthians, and what Paul is telling us, is that there are present realities, things that are here at this part of the story, that are going to fade away. There are things that are here, somewhere middle-ish of the story, depending on how you think about biblical timing and times and all of that sort of thing. And there are things that are passing away, things that will not be here when we get to the end of the story, because they will have served their purpose. 
if we get that story wrong, if we get it mixed up, if we allow other stories to get into the mix, we're going to have a distorted view of what's coming, but more, well, equally importantly, we're going to have a distorted view of what's going on right now. We're going to live wrong because we are thinking of ourselves in the context of the wrong story. And this is a world that gives us a lot of stories to place ourselves within. Some of those stories aren't inherently wrong. I think in each of our lives, probably retirement forms part of that story, and we look forward, and it's like, someday, my story of work and earn enough and get here and is going to end. I won't have to work. I'll be able to do more of the things I like. And that's, that's a story that we live into. There are stories about our children. There are stories about um, love, about career, about meaning that we, that we use. But within all of those, there is the opportunity to make them the ultimate story, to take that and elevate it above the story that God is saying is our ultimate story that finds its heart in the work and life of Jesus. Our goal today is to understand ourselves, to understand our gifts, to understand our work and our lives in the context of this story that God is telling in such a way that we don't mix up the importance of what's going on right now, that we don't mix up the importance of the means and the ends, that we don't mistake that which is temporary and passing away for that which is eternal and sure. Paul tells us that as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But love, notice this, love never ends. In the end of all things, there will still be love because God is love, as John tells us. That's the destination that we're moving toward. If you imagine this life as a road map going from one place to another, we can say that we are redeemed by God's love, propelled by God's love to walk the path of God's love towards the destination of God's love. That is our road map. That is the story that we are living in. We could add a part at the beginning about how we rebelled against, against God's love as well. So the question is, how do we learn to live within that story, and why is it so hard? So we're going to start kind of from the back, and we're going to move to the front of the passage. We're going to read verses 11 to 12 to start. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You may have heard those first verses as a kind of a truism. Um, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But now I'm an adult, right? It's, it's a story kind of about growing up. And as you grow up, you do things differently. You understand things more fully. I remember uh, growing up in the Lutheran church, we had something called confirmation, which is not something Presbyterians generally do, or at least not in the same way. But I remember at my confirmation service, which is kind of when they say you have grown up enough to um, take communion, to be a member of this church, one of the passages that was read was this one. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And it was kind of that rite of passage text, 
right? Now you are growing up. You are past childish things, and you have grown into matured things in Christ. And in some ways, that's, that's kind of a fair way of reading it. But I think Paul has something deeper and more important that he's saying if we read this in context. Because Paul's point is not that he used to think like a child, but now he's mature in his thinking. But Paul's point is that in regard to understanding God, and in regard to understanding God's love and his ways, he is still a child and we are still children. Right? I'd stand up here, I'm preaching to you all, I've got a master's degree and I feel like I know quite a bit and I, you know, by the terms of this world, you might say, oh, he's, he's full grown, he's mature. If you think about how much do I know about God in context of who God is, I'm the first grader trying to explain small particle physics, right? I am, I am so far away from who God is and what he does and how he has loved me. I see in part, right? This is what Paul says. Now we see in a glass dimly. This last year, a lot of us have, have used Zoom. I think the, the, the contemporary version of this was like, right now I'm in rural Idaho doing a Zoom call over data, and I see God to this degree, right? Every once in a while, I say, I think that's a hand. <laughs> there will come a day where we will see face to face. There will be a day when we understand, when we know God, not just seeing him kind of broken up over that screen, but seeing him face to face, speaking with him, being with him, knowing him. Paul says, and this is amazing, we will know him, we will know God fully. Take that in. We'll know the God of the universe, and we will know him fully. Think about at the end of the really, I don't want to say the serious part of the pandemic, it's like all serious, but the moment that you first kind of came back among people, and the relief and the joy that it was, just like, I'm, I'm shaking someone's hand. <laughs> I don't know how to do this anymore. This is amazing. I, I'm, I gave someone a hug. Um, there's a sense when we get to know people, when we get to be around them, actually know them in that direct way, that you realize how insubstantial it was that you were knowing them before. Right? If you've ever had a pen pal and then you met them in person, you realize like there is this significantly more deep, more vital relationship. And Paul is telling us, the way that we are with God is going to be even more than that. It is, we're seeing him dimly in a mirror, but we're going to know him face to face. Now remember, the context Paul is writing in here is a discussion of spiritual gifts. And the context that he is talking about being a child also bears on that discussion. It's helpful to notice that all three gifts Paul mentions in verse 8 are concerned with understanding, right? If we are talking about, now I know God a little bit, I see him vaguely in a mirror, but then I'm going to know him fully. These gifts have to do with that process of knowing God, with that attempt to know God and to know him thoroughly. So we have tongues. You know, if you think about the use of tongues in scripture, it was something by which God was speaking through people both to communicate his own word, to, to communicate what he was saying, and then to communicate across the lines of language. It was a way of God 
providing in a place that people needed to hear from him. We'll talk about tongues a little bit more later. There was prophecy, which was God, again, divinely. Not, this wasn't something that people were just saying, you know, I think God is saying that, that there's this vague thing that's going to happen. It was God saying, boom, here it is. It's true. You can rely on it. This is my word to you. It was knowledge, which I think we get this one wrong sometimes in contemporary society. We have that idea of, I got a word of knowledge. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Um, I think really what, what he's referring to here is a divinely enabled ability to understand, right? God looks at us. He's like, I know your children trying to figure out Einstein. Like, I, I know that that's how you are. I'm going to help you. I'm going to enable you. If you've ever listened to somebody, you've just been like, how is that pastor or that theologian or whatever it is, how do they get this so much better than I do? There is this thing that God does where he just gives gifts because he knows that we need the help. So God gives these gifts, and Paul says these are gifts that are good. They were gifts that were given to mend the brokenness that we have in the world and that we have with God. So if you think about tongues, tongues are this kind of reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. If you remember that Old Testament story, the people from different places were coming together and they were building this tower and saying, you know, essentially, we are going to build this thing that is so amazing and that is so giant that we are going to reach our way to God. There's nothing that we can't do. It was a symbol, essentially, of human pride of saying, you know, we can do anything. We can get to God. We can build things that will last forever. God said, that's interesting that you're going to attempt to do that. It's a a good start that you got on that building, but I'm going to confuse your tongues, and there's going to be these different languages you're going to struggle to communicate. And it was a sign of the ways that our sin and our rebellion against God not only divides us from God, but divides us from one another. But God in the New Testament gives this amazing gift of tongues to kind of counteract that thing that happened at Babel, to bring people together as they hear the word of Jesus, showing that in Jesus, all of those divisions, all of those things that kept people apart, in him, knowing him, those things dissolve. They are passing away. They are almost irrelevant because of the amazing love that we have in Jesus that draws us together. This is one of the reasons that as the church um, over the years it has failed to denounce racism in various ways has been a particularly difficult thing to get past because it is so contrary to what Jesus has done in the gospel of saying there is no Jew and Greek, there is no male and female, there is no slave and free. All are one in Jesus Christ because of how good and amazing and unifying and true he is. There are tongues, there's prophecy mending the brokenness. We read in our uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism about how man's fall affected him. That in, in the fall, man lost communion with God, was under the guilt of his sin, was under the curse of sin. He had brokenness with one another that he uh, deserved hell. And this is one of the most painful phrases of the Shorter Catechism, that he was liable to the pains of hell forever. That was what man's rebellion against God brought on, and yet God speaks. He gives uh, 
prophecy as a means of restoring man to communion with him, of breaking down that brokenness, and of healing what was broken between them. Remember, man once walked in the cool of the day with God in the garden. He once had that direct face-to-face way of dealing with God. And when he sinned, there were two problems that he caused. He caused the problem of separation, and he caused the problem of guilt, of not being with God face-to-face. And even if he could have been with God face-to-face, that incredible guilt that you see in Adam in the garden, where God is coming and he says, what do I want to do? Do I run to him or do I hide? And he chooses to hide. But God speaks to his people, knows that they can't find their way to him, but he comes to them and he brings his word. Finally, knowledge is this way of of mending the brokenness. When man tries to contemplate God, even when man tries to contemplate this world or ourselves, we are dealing with things that are too complex, too difficult for us, and things that we naturally that we naturally just skew and misunderstand because not only of our lack of understanding, but because of our sin, that we turn aside from that which is true. And God gives this gift of knowledge and of understanding to help to enable man to understand that which is beyond his ability, hopefully to instruct others in it. It's usually thought that this gift of understanding is not just one for yourself. It's not just one that is you know, inward looking, but it's you understand so that you can be someone who passes on that understanding, who teaches, who instructs, who helps other people. It's like, yeah, this is difficult. This is complicated. But God has given this gift, and to some of you, to say, oh, it's still complicated. It's still difficult. But as I see good things in his word, to pass it on, to to share that joy and that knowledge. Now, out of the three gifts Paul lists here, um, knowledge, that last one, is the one that we, in our theological tradition, and I, as uh, someone reading scripture would say, is still operating in the same way. I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, and nobody has written angry angry emails yet, so I can say it again, uh, that that I take a position that I would call uh, cautious cessationism. And if you're saying that sounds like complicated theological jargon, that's fine, and just move past it. Um, But essentially what it means is that in the story that God is telling, uh, there were gifts that he gave that served a purpose, uh, and that that purpose essentially was completed, and so the gifts were no longer active in the same way. So if you think about someone living in the first century, you know, the Corinthians, and you're saying, you know, what do you believe about Jesus? They didn't get to turn to Romans, right? (laughs) They didn't get to say, oh, yeah, well, John in Revelation says, you know, that, that he's like this. Uh, they had the Old Testament, which was a beautiful thing. Uh, you see in the New Testament the amount of preaching that they did from the Old Testament to say this is how Jesus fulfills all of this. But we see these gifts of tongues, of prophecy, as I think a way of God reaching out to people in this period of saying, I want to help you to understand. I want to help you to know who Jesus is, to understand what you are supposed to be doing, to understand uh, yourself and why it is difficult to, to live this way and to follow Jesus and how you can grow in that. Um, and this, this book, 
the Bible itself is the, the fruit of God's prophecy. Right? Peter writes about that and how prophecy, God's word is not, not the result of the work of man, but God's writers, the prophets wrote as they were moved by God's spirit. And he has given us his word, which is true and infallible and trustworthy. And as we uh, seek to understand it and as we seek to learn from it, um, essentially what he was doing through the tongues and through prophecy we, we, we have that, right? We, are, we aren't getting something that's second best, is the point. Often, as, as we, uh, in the modern sense, think about tongues and prophecy and are like, no, we need to get that back. We need to be pursuing those things. We need to, to be speaking in tongues more and more and more. Um, frequently, not always, but frequently, it ends up kind of putting a, a lesser importance or lesser trust in the word of God. You know, that you're looking for, oh, that, that's an old word, but we need a fresh word. And Paul's point, and the point of Peter in another book, is this, this word's pretty fresh. It's going to stay that way. It's not going to pass away. So God has blessed us with good gifts for people who don't understand. God has blessed us with gifts for people that we are, Right? If you think about you know, someone in first grade, you don't get them a TI-84 calculator. If you, if you look at someone who works in the church, you also don't get them a TI-84 calculator. You, you get a gift that fits the person you're gifting. So God has blessed us as, as children as we are trying to understand the goodness and the greatness and the love of God. And he's given us gifts that fit with who we are and what we need. And they're helpful. They're good. There's going to come a time when we do understand fully and that they won't be necessary, and that is good news. Right now, we understand God and the world and ourselves, like Paul says, like we're looking through a foggy mirror. We see the outlines. We have true understanding, but there is so much that we just know. I don't see how I, I am limited. I can't understand everything. There are mysteries to me. There are things that I hope I will understand one day, and I trust that I will. So why is all of this important? Uh, you may be saying there, this, this sounds really good, and this sounds really pretty about God's love. Uh, it sounds, you know, kind of flowery. God's love never ends, and we, we think of it kind of like a, a rose-scented candle. It's just nice, and it feels good. Uh, but how does this actually affect my life? Uh, because my life, your life, probably is not like that rose-scented candle. It probably has some rough parts. It has parts where you are living and thinking, you know, the word that, that seems most relevant to me right now is not the word love. Does that strike you as true? There are moments, you know, when you're in an argument with your spouse, where, when you're getting laid off from work, when your boss is telling you, oh, by the way, you have a project due, and it's due on Monday, and it's Friday, uh, just don't worry, yeah, like, you'll, you'll be fine, yeah, 40 hours a week over the weekend, you can do it, right? There are times in life where love doesn't seem like the word that strikes us as relevant. So how does what Paul is saying actually hit us day to day? There are three goals. Like, I, I like to make things practical. I, I feel like I, I need that as, as somebody reading the word. Is I, I need to make it practical if I'm going to actually do anything with it. So I've got three goals 
that we want to take away from this text. The first one is keep your eyes on the end of the story. Keep your eyes on the end of the story. In another passage, Paul uses the illustration of a runner running a race. You don't just run for the sake of running. You run with a goal. I ran cross country when I was, well, for one year in high school, and then I realized that was an interesting decision. I'm going to stop doing that. Um, I ran every single race as someone who didn't really love running. And, and the whole race, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about the finish line. <laughs> it's like, I know where I'm going. I, I'm not just here running for the sake of running. I'm getting here. I want to, well, if not win, then at least, you know, have some sense of accomplishment because I've run this race. So we run, we, we live our lives with the finish line in mind. This is why so many hymns talk about heaven. If you ever think about that, it's like, are Christians just morbid? Is it just like, we can't stop thinking about, you know, death and what's going to happen afterwards. But we sing about heaven, not because we're morbid, not because we just can't stop thinking about death. But we sing about heaven because we're hopeful. There's a character of the Christian thought about heaven, of, of this historic tradition that we have of singing about what's coming after this life that is based in the hope that there's going to come that day that we see fully and face to face. I wrote the, so we've sung a a new song that I I wrote a few times now, Await My Soul. Um, And it's interesting that this song has a lot of that in it. It has a lot of those lyrics about what's coming after this life, about just being frank about sometimes in this life, Things aren't the way that we want them to be. And love doesn't seem like it applies all that much. And it seems like Jesus maybe isn't winning. There's that second stanza that begins that way. Lord, yet though the Lord and rule is risen higher than the Roman tree that is higher than the cross, still waits my heart upon the question, is this all a victory? I was talking to somebody in the church after um, the difficulties that we had with our former pastor, and there the question was asked, it doesn't feel like Jesus is winning. <laughs> you know, how, how is this victory when you know, such terrible things have happened, not just in the world, but in the church, by people who take the name of Christ? How is this victory? Is this the best that Jesus can do? Those are difficult questions. I think they're good questions to ask. The last stanza of that hymn, my best attempts to deal with that, of saying, yeah, it's difficult, it's hard. Lord, permit no other hope to veil him. Dreams to bear him from my sight. Here here forever shall I remain a pilgrim till I see his glory bright. It's saying, there are really difficult things in this world, and if we get our eyes taken off of that which is coming, of the glory of being with Jesus, of his incredible love for us that we will know not just through a mirror dimly, but face to face, that as we keep our eyes on that hope, we will have more strength to live here. As we keep our eyes on where we are going, we will keep ourselves in the right point in our story here. How near the eager end of waiting. Those are words that, even as I wrote them, it was like, do I even mean that? (laughs) It's like, does that actually resonate within me? How near the eager end of waiting? Am I looking forward to that? I, I wonder about, you know, we think about the hymn, It Is Well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, 
whatever my lot he has taught me to say as well as well with my soul. You have to wonder the question, like, the man who wrote that wrote that right after his, his children had died. I mean, like, did he mean that or did he write that being like, God, help me to mean this? I tend to think it was a little bit of the latter and I think that's okay. Because we live in a world that tries to pull us away from that story that is just filled with difficult things, but God has shown us this is where you're going. Keep your eyes on the end of this story because it's good. Spend your time thinking about that. Spend time with God and hear his voice saying, you know me a little bit now and you're going to be in my presence. You're going to know me face to face. Keep your eyes on him in that way. Second thing, again, making this practical, imitate God's love. And we've talked about this before, but I'm just going to keep telling you. As we see the way that God has loved us, as we look at the cross, we talked about this last week, and see how Jesus was kind at the cross, how Jesus was patient at the cross, how he did not seek that which would be easy for him, but he laid down his rights so that he could love us in the way that we needed him to love us. We imitate God's love, which means that God is going to give us gifts that we are going to need to use like God intends for the sake of his love. The question is, how has God gifted you? What, what is that thing for you? It's easy to look up at the pastor and say, okay, he has a gift. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's not that easy to say. Uh, <laughs> I need to walk that back a little bit. This pastor. <laughs> um, but sometimes we don't think of ourselves as someone that God has given gifts to. I can look out at, at each of you in various ways, in different ways, as I've come to know you and say, God has given you Gifts for the sake of extending his love to those who need it. And we need to hold those in the way that Jesus held them. As someone looking to share the love of God and not to elevate himself by the gift that was meant to extend that love. And finally, thirdly, we rejoice in temporary, in partial, in gifts that are passing away. Paul is speaking to people who took these gifts of tongues and of prophecy and they made them the main thing, right? There's a saying, the main thing in life, you know how it goes, is to keep the main thing the main thing. And Paul is speaking to people who had failed to keep the main thing the main thing. They had said, here's a gift and it's going to make me look so cool and it's going to make me look so impressive and so smart and so godly and I'm going to use it for that purpose. It's good to rejoice in the gifts that God's given because he gives them for a good purpose. But we rejoice in them as what they are, which is a gift that's passing away. And I think about preaching quite a bit. I try to do my best to write good sermons and work on it and understand the word better and be able to help people to take it and to make it practical. And I'm still working on that, very much still working on that. And there's going to come a day when all of that work it was for that period and it's past because we're going to be with him face to face. Nobody's going to need me to explain what God's word meant because they're going to be there saying, Jesus, I see you. I, I, I understand you have given me that ability. We are here face to face. The, the preacher, you know, thanks for that period, but, but we don't need that gift anymore. And I need to be excited about that. And I tell you, the more I think about it, the more I am excited about it because I need Jesus to make me irrelevant. 
in that gift. That, that is my hope, is that he will put me out of a job because of the love that he shows to all of y'all and to me and to the world that we are trying to share his good news with. We rejoice in these temporary gifts. We, we make the best use of them. If, if you are sitting here thinking, I don't know what my gift is, I don't know what God has given me to reach out to those in his church, to reach out to those outside, I'll tell you, talk to your elders, talk to your pastors, talk to me, talk to people who know you because you, God is using you. God, God has nobody on the sidelines, right? You're not a bench Christian. You're on the field. You are in play. You are doing his work. So take those gifts, use them. Be excited about them, but you be excited about them as gifts that are fading away. And be excited about that too. The last thing I want to look at before I close is this very last line, which is just amazing. It says, No, I know in part. Then I shall know fully, and here's the part, even as I have been fully known. That line is just so full of comfort. As we think about can I rightly understand everything that is in the Bible? Um, And the answer is no, right? I'm going to mess some parts of it up. The best theologians in the world are going to mess some parts of it up. It is complicated. God tells us, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And you are like children trying to understand something that is too high for you. I'm going to help you, but it is not going to change the fact that I am higher, more complex, more ununderstandable. That's not a word. We're going to go with it anyways than you can deal with. But he says, Paul says, I have been fully known. God does not know me partly. He does not know what I need in part. When he looked at me before I was born, before creation, and said, I know this person, I know Colin. He said, I know what he is going to need I know how to express my love to him. I know how to redeem him and care for him and provide for him, to take care of him until the end. I know him. I know him fully. As he looks at each of you, he says that same thing. I know him fully, her fully. You don't have to worry that God is going to have a plan that does not work, that he is going to have love that fails, that he is going to try something that does not go the way that he wants to do. He understands us. He understands our needs. He understands the love that we need to receive, and he understands it with a fullness that we can't comprehend. We don't know ourselves. As we think, if you've ever counseled someone, been counseled, whatever it is, the thing you realize in me is like we don't, we don't understand ourselves. <laughs> there, there are depths and weirdnesses and things that are just, you, you start talking, you're like, that's who I am? There is none of that in God. He looks at us and he says, I know you fully. I know what you need. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to show you my love. We're about to take communion. I'm not going to move into a separate communion sermon. But this is a way that God does exactly that for us. It's a way of God saying, I know what you need. I know how to care for my people. I know how to show my love to them. I know that you need nourishment. I know, I know that this physical sign and seal of of a spiritual reality. I know that this is something that will be good for you, that will care for you, that will nourish you. That this is a good gift that he has given to us. That as we see and receive Jesus, that he is blessing us as someone who knows us fully. Let's rejoice in that.